Welcome to the CNS Journal Club podcast today. I will be highlighting an article for the May 2020 issue of Operative Neurosurgery. My name is Dr. Raphael Vega from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and I'll be serving today as the moderator for the discussion. I'm happy to welcome today Dr. Lauren Stone, the first author of the study, who will be discussing her article entitled, A Retrospective Review of the Outcomes and Utility of Percutaneous Radiofrequency Rhizotomy for Trigeminal Neuralgia Using Anatomic Landmark Guidance in Asleep Patients. So Dr. Stone, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, it's an honor to be invited. Sure, uh, real quick, can you introduce yourself uh, to the listeners to get a little idea of your background? Sure, so I am a first year resident at the University of San Diego in California. Uh, this paper was written when I was a medical student at Temple University, um, primarily with one of our surrogate institutes in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Oh, that's very nice, uh, thank you. Um, as uh, guest faculty today, we have Dr. Hodai uh, from the University of Toronto. Uh, can you introduce yourself for the listeners? Hello, my name is uh, Dr. Mojgan Hodai. I'm a neurosurgeon at the University of Toronto, uh, and I have a special uh, clinical interest as well as research interest in trigeminal neuralgia. Oh, thank you. Thank you for being here. And then for our CNS resident fellow, we have Dr. Jan, uh, also a resident from University of Toronto, who will be discussing the paper and asking questions. Dr. Stone, can you uh, please tell us a little bit about the uh, technique, the percutaneous rate of frequency rhizotomy, and what inspired uh, the work and, you know, how's it been going so far? Sure. So the the desire to write this paper essentially came from a very organic observation in our population in Bethlehem of many patients who had experienced long-standing trigeminal, trigeminal pain that did not have the access either to an invasive procedure like a microvascular decompression or they had come to being at the end of many decades of pain after multiple interventions and still persisted in having pain and were looking for options. So there was a single clinic in our city, in the area, that had well over 100 cases of these patients in a similar position, and we'd offered majority of them a radiofrequency rhizotomy, ultimately with our research interest of determining whether this could be an option for patients who fit in this very specific cohort. Hmm. Interesting. So can you give us a, a quick little brief uh, summary of the study and some of the results and, and how this may be relevant to some of the listeners? Sure. So our study included patients between the years of 2012 to 2017 at a single institution, um, specifically in the area in and around the Lehigh Valley. Uh, they were patients who were, regardless of um, medications, regardless of previous procedures, were not experiencing what they would consider effective pain relief, and essentially it was pain that was uh, considering continuing to cause them significant um, reductions in their quality of life. So these patients all underwent radiofrequency rhizotomy under a single surgeon through our institution, and then we retrospectively reviewed their results at, interview, at intervals, excuse me, of one month, one year, three years, and five years, looking at their pain relief, their change in medications as well. Uh, we also looked at a number of different subgroups 
including patients with multiple sclerosis, including patients who had had previous non-radiofrequency rhizotomy procedures, patients who would go on to have additional radiofrequency rhizotomy procedures, patients who had had, um, who this was a repeat procedure for as well. Our results were broken down to a number of different categories, and just to focus on, on a few, um, one of the, our primary outcome was pain relief at, at the intervals that I did discuss. We ended up having 98 patients in our total study. At one month in the entire cohort, our relief was 90.8%. At one year, 66.3. Uh, at three years, it was 71.1. And at five years, we were about at 50% at, at a coin toss as well. Now, uh, something that we can discuss later, we had decided to cohort our patient's pain into the BNI scale, uh, the Barrow Neurological Institute uh, pain scale. So ultimately, what we're defining as pain relief here was um, a score of three or less, which would be pain relatively well controlled regardless of the use of medications. Thank you so much. Uh, I'd like to ask now Dr. Hodai to see if she has some questions for the author and open up for uh, discussion. Thank you very much, Dr. Stone. First of all, congratulations on this uh, paper. I found it uh, very um, uh, valuable in terms of contribution of our knowledge of what happens when patients have rhizotomy and importantly uh, a very nice read so well done on uh, on uh, on this manuscript uh, Thank so you. some of the areas that i think it's valuable to uh, talk about in my view is the fact that uh, your group is obviously a mixed population in my experience, patients with MS are a specific category within the, uh, the patients that um, may benefit from rhizotomy. But in terms of sedation, it's a bit of a tricky thing because sometimes patients with MS, as you know, their variability in the disease severity is uh, uh, quite notable. And this results in sometimes uh, an, uh, a level of over-sedation uh, that is concerning when, uh, when you're under anesthesia and uh, uh, sometimes insufficient. So, how, uh, based on uh, the work that you did on this manuscript, how was uh, the uh, cohort of patients with MS managed and what was the impact of sedation on those patients? Sure, sure, and absolutely correct. Trigeminal neuralgia in patients with multiple sclerosis is unique uh, in that it's likely secondary to the demyelinating process through this on ongoing research. Uh, Clinically, it's also unique in that it's more frequently bilateral. Uh, the demographic's often younger, and it's notoriously more challenging to obtain pain relief. Now, uh, this being said, the inclusion criteria in our study was essentially patients who were not received, not obtaining pain relief, um, regardless of the degree of what their pain was. Uh, it was more of a binary. Now, for sedation, which was a really key point in, in our study, uh, we didn't find that patients required more sedation uh, if they had multiple sclerosis, uh, but this wasn't something that we heavily standardized for our study. Interesting. And uh, I assume that, uh, or at least maybe you can tell us, were there any specific uh, precautions that your anesthesia team would need to take into account for these patients? Uh, this is something I, I would have to defer to them, not something that we included specifically in the paper. 
Maybe I can uh, go on with another question, and uh, that is, uh, I was struck by a comment that I believe you made at the top of the discussion session, and that is that there are multiple etiologies responsible for trigeminal neuralgia. And I wonder whether, uh, you know, that this is a very valuable sentence and very much worth thinking about. Now, um, I wonder whether we can talk about that or perhaps talk a bit better about multiple etiologies responsible for trigeminal pain uh, and whether, uh, in fact, uh, different types of trigeminal pain, not just trigeminal neuralgia, might be responsible, responsive to rhizotomy. So I note, for example, in your list that different indications, uh, such as um, uh, patients that have had tumors and so on have also been included. What are your thoughts about that? Are there multiple etiologies for trigeminal neuralgia or multiple etiologies for trigeminal pain? Sure, and trigeminal neuralgia as a term itself has, has evolved into nuanced semantics. Now, it's appropriate to say that not all facial pain is indeed trigeminal neuralgia as we may define it today. And firstly, true trigeminal neuralgia should be differentiated from pain that may be in a trigeminal distribution, even, even a migraine or even TMJ. Um, pain due to some sort of process at the trigeminal nerve itself, though, may fall into more of a category of the true trigeminal pathology. I think this is well captured by Kim Burchell's categorization of trigeminal pain, where trigeminal neuralgia correlates to idiopathic causes of trigeminal pain. That would be a type one, which is that classic, typical paroxysmal lightning sort of pain type two being constant burning pain. Uh, further categorization in his uh, breakdown can be defined by etiology, uh, deafferentation, neuropathic, posturpedic, uh, symptomatic, which would be pain from multiple sclerosis, and also a special category of atypical, which is a correlate to a somatoform disorder. Now, for, for our paper in particular, we chose to define atypical in the broader vernacular, meaning burning constant idiopathic pain, which might correlate to a virtual type 2 trigeminal neuralgia. Dr. Yan, uh, real quickly, do you think you have any additional questions for the author? Um, yeah, sure. I would love to uh, have the opportunity to ask some questions. Uh, again, very interesting uh, paper, Dr. Stone. and. Uh, uh, Working at the University of Toronto, where I see uh, our staff physicians perform uh, MVDs and uh, glycerol rhizotomies, it's interesting to definitely see a, a paper on a different approach as well. Um, so, as you had uh, already mentioned, uh, we talked about uh, the main outcome of your paper um, and the uh, Barrel Neurologic Institute uh, pain intensity score. Um, I'm just, to my understanding at least, I think the gold standard is to use. Uh, a score of one of no pain and no medications as a good outcome. Uh, was there a reason for your uh, decision to use uh, scores one to three as a binary outcome um, and division there? Yeah, that's a great question. And ultimately, this decision was made very early in our planning. Uh, first of all, using this score was a way for us to be fluent in the, in the clinical conversation of trigeminal neuralgia. That is, to use standardized nomenclature that is frequently used across the literature. Now, the BNI score is a composite of uh, pain relief and medication use that allows some degree of standardization across treatments. And a score of three, as you mentioned before, means that there is some pain, but it's well controlled with medications. 
And uh, this is an important distinction for us because in these early stages of um, putting together this study, it became clear to us that any sort of manageable pain relief that is with, without medications would yield a marked impact on the quality of life for our patient cohort. And we wanted to reflect this in our study to have a truly patient-centric outcome while still being able to enter the standardized vernacular among the majority of the literature. Now, uh, there are a number of other validated scales, uh, such as the BPI, brief pain inventory, or the Penn facial pain scale that, that are appropriate for other aims, um, are so specific for the purpose as stated. Very good. Obviously, uh, it, it's difficult with these studies to find the best scale. And then with research, we always want to be able to compare between studies. So uh, I recognize uh, the importance of choosing uh, something that's reasonable and makes sense within the realm of the study. Um, my, my second question is, uh, you had mentioned before, a big part of the study was having patients be um, asleep versus uh, being intermittently awake. Um, so, why was that a main focus for this study and in terms of uh, the uh, literature outside of uh, your uh, study, has there been more of comparisons uh, comparing uh, a sleep versus intermittent awakening of patients? Um, sure, sure. At the time of publication, the answer was no, there wasn't a direct head-to-head -head comparison. I believe that remains true to my knowledge. Ultimately, our decision to study this and to, to write this paper was an observation that many patients were very anxious about the idea of being woken up in the middle of their procedure and ultimately having their, their area of facial pain be, be probed, which is, I think, an understandable fear. It was also a curiosity to us as well as our fluoroscopy evolves, our, our ability to study the skull base in advance with CT, to look at the... Uh, look with the Fiesta MRI, for example, at the course of the trigeminal nerve, the question of whether or not awakening was, was even necessary and what the detriment be to the patient, if any, if we avoided awakening. Also a question on the back of our mind too was if we performed this procedure entirely asleep, would that change the duration of the procedure? And would that be significant enough to have broader implications for healthcare costs. Now, this isn't something that we directly addressed in this paper itself, but at least a point of thought for future study. For sure, definitely. I think that's a, your paper is a great starting point for uh, future investigations. Um, one thing that I was curious about uh, with regards to table four and your main outcome, um, as you had mentioned the different time points um, earlier, um, you, we note that uh, over the course of one month, uh, we have a really good outcome, but it's also a good number of patients who were reviewed for follow-up um, at 98. However, at five years, we have uh, only 22 patients who uh, were seen in follow-up. Um, and so do, do you think there's a bias for patients who continue to follow up for such a long duration? Are these patients possibly the ones who have ongoing concerns and problems and therefore they continue to return to medical care, or um, do you have an idea or a guess of some of the hidden biases behind these numbers? Yeah, that's a good question. And this paper represent, represents an ongoing investigation of all procedures at our institution between 2013-2017. Now, this means that patients included in the study um, had not all reached that three to five year mark when we started writing. 
Uh, nonetheless, we wanted to at least show some preliminary suggestion of what three and five year follow up can be. We're continuing to collect outcome data on all the patients in this cohort, um, which ultimately could present itself in the addendum or future paper for us to address more, more of the patients in the long term follow up. As it stands, we actually have only had two patients uh, lost to follow-up that is no longer receiving any care for trigeminal neuralgia within our network and with no recorded pain relief at one month or beyond. Uh, these two patients were necessarily excluded uh, since we'd not be able to trend their outcome. Uh, this granted, I, I would say, could create a potential for bias, but seeing as the number was quite small, in our overall population sample of, of 98, uh, we felt that it was reasonable to not include them. Okay, great. Um, my next question, I think I'll direct to Dr. Stone and also Dr. Hodai. Um, based on a comment you had said earlier that um, some patients do not have access to um, my, um, uh, MVD or uh, craniotomy for uh, trigeminal neuralgia. Do, do you think that's an issue of cost or not, uh, or just fear of having a brain surgery? What do you think is kind of the impetus behind that? Um, and I'm curious whether, you know, being the American versus Canadian system, whether other limitations with uh, insurance or something else that prevents uh, patients from choosing a specific type of care or um, learning about all the different options. Sure, I, I can speak anecdotally for, for the patients that I interacted with. Um, for many of them, it was by the nature of their age. Uh, they had comorbidities uh, that wouldn't allow them to have a large open procedure. Um, this was especially true for our patients who had already had many procedures in, in their earlier life and now they were 70 plus years old and still, and still having facial pain and were looking for options. That was probably the, the most represented cohort that we saw. Uh, we also saw patients who, who, as you said, were hesitant towards doing what they considered uh, brain surgery, open brain surgery, and they wanted to explore other options in advance. From my experience, this very much uh, is the case. Uh, there is uh, individual level of um, hesitation and anxiety about uh, brain surgery. And uh, similarly, there is concern about possible radiation if the option of radiosurgery is offered to them. Um, so uh, it is fairly individualized, certainly for patients with multiple sclerosis. I think the option of rhizotomy is much more viable than that of um, uh, microvascular decompression or microvascular rhizotomy. Um, but uh, uh, in itself, rhizotomy uh, poses a very uh, good opportunity of rendering patients, particularly patients in whom the pain is very, very severe, uh, to have a very easy and quick relief. Okay. Um, Great. I'll have another question for, I guess, the both of you. So for Dr. Stone, how do you think your study uh, helped clarify the best indications for, for cutaneous radiofrequency rhizotomy? And uh, Dr. Hodai, perhaps you can speak to how your personal research may uh, help determine indications for several of treatments of uh, trigeminal neuralgia. Sure, I can start. Uh, the, the purpose of our study was to show that sleep radiofrequency rhizotomy is quick, uh, it's minimally taxing on a patient, and it's, it's also effective. It wasn't as much a head-to-head -head comparison against other procedures, but at least a, a conversation into viable treatment options for select populations like we just discussed. 
Uh, we can talk about two specific categories here uh, that I think may help to illuminate this. Uh, for example, patients who were undergoing repeat treatments. So uh, we looked at two different groups, um, patients who are having repeat rhizotomy and also patients who are having uh, rhizotomy after having had a different trigeminal neuralgia intervention. Our, our outcome for patients having repeat radiofrequency rhizotomy were similar to the entire cohort at one month at about 88 or so percent relief uh, without having an increased incidence of adverse effects either. Now, granted, their relief did drop off to about 54 percent at one year. Uh, that being said, also in patients where radiofrequency rhizotomy was a secondary treatment, meaning that they'd had NBD in the past, they'd had a glycerol rhizotomy or they'd had gamma knife, pain relief was still respectably 73.9 percent at, at one year. I think that these examples at least give us a better view of where radiofrequency rhizotomy may be an option um, for patients with multiple sclerosis who may have recurrent pain. They can still have significant, both statistically but also clinically significant relief with a repeat procedure. Also, patients who have uh, refractory pain after having undergone an, an open procedure like a microvascular decompression or after having um, a glycerol rhizotomy, for example, or a gamma knife and continue to have pain, they can still achieve some semblance of, of clinically significant pain relief with a relatively non-invasive, quick, easy, minimally taxing procedure. Thank you. So from my perspective, I think uh, something that very much complements the clinical studies that are being done is a greater understanding of exactly uh, what factors point to good relief from surgical treatment. And I think this is fundamental uh, as we speak with patients and as we make decisions. Uh, for all the patients that we all see with trigeminal neuralgia, our typical response is to provide them with general uh, numbers of what is the likelihood of them having relief after a specific procedure. We don't have any proper tools that, that allow us to individualize those odds for patients. And uh, what uh, we are trying to do with our research uh, work uh, here in Toronto is to identify imaging uh, characteristics and particularly focusing on the microstructure of the trigeminal nerve fibers to see what are the specific uh, the um, changes that are abnormalities in these fibers that point to a response versus non-response status. And I think uh, hopefully soon we will we'll be able to complement uh, our clinical assessment and investigation with some level of objectivity derived from in vivo imaging that allows us to uh, counsel patients better and in this light uh, favor potentially one procedure over another provide them with a more reasonable set of odds so that we can make treatment decisions better for them. One last point I'll, I'll bring up is a recent interesting study that I saw. Um, there was a group, Barty et al, uh, who performed an RCT in 2019, um, and they compared uh, a radiofrequency rhizotomy um, of the Gassian ganglion versus the peripheral branches of the trigeminal neuralgia, so instead of our usual trajectory. And they actually demonstrated comparable results for uh, both the outcome and the and uh, duration of operative time, which uh, Dr. Stone had mentioned is important to consider as well. Um, I guess for, for both of you, do you think this is a possible option we can look to in the future? Is this possibly safer in asleep patients if we're not, uh, we're only targeting peripheral branches? 
Yeah, I, you know, I, I read through the paper, and it, it's it's very interesting. Uh, one thing, I'd, I'd be curious to see the results a, a bit longer out. I think the paper addressed to maybe three months or so, which which is certainly three months of, of excellent, important information as well. They had very good outcomes for their patients. As far as it is a safer option in, in asleep patients, I, I think that that would be uh, yet to be told, I suppose. And also that in comparison, whether or not they did, these patients did have a longer lasting pain relief. Uh, the reason why I'm focusing on that detail is that in the past, there have been some suggestions that peripheral ablation may be uh, less long acting than a ganglion ablation. Um, although I'm not quite sure if there's actually been a long-term head-to-head -head performed on this. That's actually a very interesting comment, uh, uh, Dr. Yan. And I guess the general axiom uh, that uh, potentially historically we followed is that the more central the procedure, the greater the likelihood for it to last longer, and the more peripheral it is, the less likelihood. And you know, we we think of that as uh, you know, clinically speaking, in the in the realm of uh, common sense, that that sort of works. Microvascular decompression is more central and has the greatest uh, long-term benefit uh, for patients. Whereas when we do peripheral procedures, such as, uh, you know, section of peripheral branches and so on, that has a tendency of wearing off uh, sooner. So I think, uh, you know, a, a proper head-to-head -head comparison would really uh, focus also on long-term relief and also the possibility of the apparentation pain, which uh, tends to happen later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, not really a question, but a comment. I remember when I was a medical student uh, with Dr. Hodai, she had said to me, uh, with patients with trigeminal neuralgia, they really, by the time they're coming to a neurosurgeon, they're really at the end of their rope and they're very desperate for mm -hmm. any type of treatment. So mm -hmm. I think it's very viable that we're doing research to find uh, the best uh, types of uh, options for these people who sometimes are neglected because it's not a life-threatening issue, but it is something that greatly affects the uh, quality of life for sure. Well, you know, thank you, everybody. I mean, this was a tremendous discussion, and uh, I'd like to quickly thank all the participants as we uh, come to a close. Uh, Dr. Stone, Dr. Hodai, and Dr. Young, thank you so much for this wonderful journal club and this great discussion. Um, for all our listeners, I encourage you to click through and obtain CME uh, afterwards. Uh, check out more upcoming podcasts as we're doing this every month, and thanks again every, uh, for everyone's time. Uh, this concludes the uh, Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast for May 2020. Uh, thank you, everybody.